Genesis chapter 36. The, we're looking at the whole chapter. I'm not going to read all of it, but <clears throat> it's not all in your liturgy. So if you have the text, you could open it and follow along. When you reach a chapter like Genesis 36, you typically log it away as a great place to look for baby names. So Kelly, if, yeah, if you have a, a girl, it could be base math, a son, Ohalabama. So there you go. But maybe you don't dig in and read. Maybe if, it, if it's in your morning reading plan, you just kind of, oh, genealogy, and you move on. And particularly this one. Most of these names we don't really hear again in Scripture. And as you look at what scholars say about these names, they often say, we have no idea what this means, uh, this name. But anyhow, when we look at verse 1, we're not going to skip it, though. It says, these are the generations of Esau. So that's what we're looking at. And if you're following the story of Genesis, we've been talking about who most often? Jacob, right? That's who the narrative has been giving us the story of Jacob. And now all of a sudden it's Esau's generation. So you're like, well, this isn't even the main character in the story. Why do we need to stay here? We're not even talking about, like I said, Jacob, who was called Israel in Genesis 35. The Israel in Genesis 35, whom God made these great promises to. It's like, okay, now we've got some momentum. We're working the right direction. Surely the blessing will come. Surely they will bless all nations. Now everything's going to work out. And then all of a sudden in the middle, just Esau's generation. A bunch of names. Name after name after name. So this is Esau, the one who despised his birthright. The one who... The inheritance was stolen from him. The blessing was stolen from him. This is Esau's family tree. So why is it in Genesis? Why should we care that it's here? Well, we're going to answer that this morning. Instead of a verse-by-verse study of every verse like we normally do as we're working through this text, I'm going to summarize the chapter for us in two sections, and then we'll make some observations about why Esau's genealogy. What does it have to say to us about God? What does it have to say to us about Jesus? Remember the Emmaus disciples, they're walking with Jesus, and it says he opened the scriptures, all of them, and interpreted himself to them. So I, I like to imagine, what if Jesus gets to Genesis 36 as he's walking with the disciples, what does he say to them about how this is about him? Perhaps it is. I don't know. Let's look at verse 1 and 2. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. I'll pause there so I don't have to say all the names. But in the next couple verses, it tells us Esau, he had these wives. It lists their names and then the children that they had while they were in Canaan. Okay. Then if you look at verse 6. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, All his beasts and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan, he went into a land away from his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. That's Canaan. That's where they're living. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. So in these verses, it tells us that Esau and his family, everybody moved. They 
Can you imagine a family that size packing up the loading truck and moving? We've done it, it's hard to move a whole family, but that's what they do. And you remember, has Esau ever been in Seir? Students of the word, anybody? Has Esau ever been in Seir? Do you remember when Jacob's coming home? Where does Esau come from? Seir. He's, so he's been there. It's like he has a summer home down south in Seir. But here he moves everything he has from Canaan to the land of Seir. He leaves behind any claim of the promised land. That's the first part of the chapter. Esau's wives, children, and the move. Okay? But it prepares us for the second part of the chapter and what's going on in the second part with this phrase, that is Edom, that's in verse 1, and then verse 8, Esau is Edom. So it's preparing us for the next part of the chapter, which is verses 9 through 43. The, the rest of the chapter would be the second part. In verse 9, it says, These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. So that's where they moved to. In this part of the chapter where you see, if you read along, you read all these names, you see the expansion Everybody's having a great time looking at this teenager. I can see it in your face. Everybody's so excited. But you see this expansion of the Edomite nation. And it grows and it grows and it grows. It's actually, the, the, the author is putting in this really long history of Edom, growing into this giant nation. Look at verse 19. These are the sons of Esau, that is, Edom. And it goes on to say about their chiefs. Uh, Vicky is rooting for the chiefs today. So, hence the red. Verse, look at verse 43. It says, Magdal and Iram, these are the chiefs of Edom, that is, Esau, the father of Edom. So, a lot of information about Edom, Esau, these people. Look at verse 15 now. This is just outlining the chapter. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The word chief is seen 16 times in the ESV. But in the Hebrew, the actual Hebrew, the word is there 43 times. Oh. <laughs> but why is that important? It's, it says chiefs, Timnan, Omar, Zepho, and Kenaz in verse 15. But really, in the Hebrew, it says chief Timnan, chief Omar, chief Zepho. So b before every name in the text is the word chief. That's significant because Hebrew uses words repeated, often repeated words to make a point. That's how the Hebrew language works. So what's the point? These chiefs and Esau is Edom. Esau's family, here's the point, is growing into a nation that is growing into nations. No longer just a family unit, the Canaanites and their children, the wives and their children, but a nation with a governmental system, with leaders in the nations. Look at verse 31, this is the key. So if you're gonna underline one thing in Genesis 36, so the next time you're there, you wanna remember what this is all about, verse 31 would be the key verse. It says, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any kings reigned over the Israelites. Before any kings reigned. This is a sudden change in wording. We've read the word chief several times, but now we're told these chiefs are like kings who reigned in this land 
even before, that is, they established themselves, they had authority, they had a governmental system before Jacob, before he established himself, before he had kings, before Israel grew into a nation, Edom has grown and prospered. For our study, from our study in Genesis, we know that God has made promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob to bless them, to grow them into this great nation, to give them a land, so that from them, from their nation, from this land, the blessing of God's presence could go out into all the world and draw men and women and children to know the true God. In Genesis 28, God told Jacob, you're going to possess Canaan, and your family is going to be like the dust of the earth the dust of the earth. They're going to have a huge family. And he says in 28, God says, so that through you, the earth will be blessed. Genesis 35, 11. Father Michael looked at it last week. 35, 11. This is significant. And God said to him, that is Jacob. (laughs) God said to him, Jacob, (laughs) verse 11. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company and nation shall come for you. And what? And what? And kings shall come from your own body. Kings from Jacob. That was the promise in Genesis 35. In Genesis 49.10, God tells Judah, if you remember, he, or Jacob, Jacob tells Judah, he brings him close as he's dying, and he says, listen, son, from you will come a king, and this king will rule the world forever. The scepter will not depart from him. So there's this great promise of king from Israel. But now in Genesis 36, there's a pause in the narrative to give us this quick sketch of history, the growth of Edom, and the key is they had kings. But the blessed covenant community has yet to establish themselves as a nation. They still live in a land occupied by other people. They're threatened by these other nations, and they have no kings. So it seems like the wrong son is becoming a nation. Jacob was given the blessing, not Esau. Further, it seems like someone totally undeserving of any blessing in his life is growing and prospering, while Jacob, who at some times seems deserving, is not. His family's still very small, threatened by other people. Eventually, he'll have to escape the land of promise to go into Egypt. Let's compare just really quickly Esau and Edom. Sorry, Esau and Jacob. Esau put carnal cravings ahead of of his inheritance. Remember, he sold his inheritance for what? Some soup, some stew. Esau also craved the death of his brother. Instead of marrying women from Haran, where the patriarchs had married women from, he took wives of Canaan who were devoted to false gods and idols. In fact, a few archaeological digs have found in the land of Seir, where Edom was at, it was totally, the culture was totally engulfed in worship of false idols. And so these Canaanite women bring all of that with them into their family. When they couldn't stay in the land of Canaan, he moves away. Jacob, on the other hand, 
has the promise of blessing. He went to the right place to find a wife. He had this beautiful vision of a ladder. Remember, God speaks to him and blesses him. He makes altars to Yahweh, the one true God. And yeah, he did some things wrong, right? And he sought reconciliation with his brother. And there's that thing with his daughter, Dinah, where he didn't speak up for her honor, didn't protect her. But then he found redemption in the love of God, was brought to Bethel and built an altar there to worship the one true God. And it was Jacob who, when the two families couldn't stay together, said, I'm staying here. But here it seems like the wrong guy is succeeding. Even more, and to the first readers of Genesis, it seems like the enemy is prospering. The first readers of Genesis. As a reminder, the very first readers of Genesis are Israelites preparing to take the land of promise. Joshua is their leader at that point. And as they listen, just imagine you're an Israelite. And you're sitting on this beautiful plain, rocky hill, whatever it is. And you're hearing Genesis for the first time. It's been given to you. And you're listening to this story. And you hear Esau is Edom. Esau, the father of the Edomites. Esau is Edom. Over and over and over. You know the Edomites very well. When God rescued his people from Egypt, he led them through the waters led them to Mount Sinai, gave them the covenant, loved them, forgave them, let them see and hear him. And then they bring, he brings them to the land of promise. And then they're scared, right? The Canaanites are huge. I mean, God just rescued us from Egypt. He defeated Pharaoh. But these guys, they're too, they're too strong for God. So they lack faith. And God is upset. And he says, you're going to wander the desert for 40 years. Do you remember this? You're with me? Well, in that time, at one point, in a really difficult situation, Moses needed to lead the people of Israel, guess where? Right through Edom. That's where he needed to go. This is in Numbers 20, verse 14. Moses writes a letter to the king of Edom. Remember, they have a lot of kings now. Well, he writes him a letter and says, listen, I need to go through your land. We're brothers. Deuteronomy says that Esau, the Edomites, Israel, they're like brothers. I need to come through. I'll be respectful. We won't take any. Just let us come through. But it says in Numbers 20, 20 and 21, listen to what it says. The king said to Moses, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away. So not only has Edom established itself, survived a famine, built a nation, grown with these kings, but they've also refused the people of Israel passage and came against them with an army. This is what the Israelites reading Genesis for the first time would know about the Edomites. So yeah, from their mind, it looks like the wrong son is prospering, is growing. But when we zoom out even further, we have a whole canon now. It's right here. And when we zoom out even further and we look canonically at what's going on, Edom continues to plague Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. 
for hundreds of years, leading wars against Judah. At one point, David subdues them. Balaam had this oracle, you'll be subdued by a king. David does subdue them, but then the subsequent kings refuse to seek God, and so Edom rises up again, and eventually Edom helps in the downfall of Israel, in their deportation, their captivity into Babylon. They assist in that. So Edom and Judah, Israel, have this long history, will have a long history. So God, he has strong words for Edom. In Amos 1, 11 and 12, it says this, God says, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Timon and it shall devour the strongholds of Bozrah. That is Edom. It's a judgment. The judgment against Edom in Isaiah 35 is even stronger. Obadiah, the prophet, wrote to the Edomites. It says in Obadiah, verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother, that'd be Israel, to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. She'll be cut off forever. It's God's words against Edom. Ezekiel and Jeremiah also prophesied judgment against these Edomites. These are the enemies of God, the Edomites. These are the enemies of God's people, Israel. And here, wedged in the Jacob narrative, the author telescopes history to show us they succeed in becoming a nation with kings and that Israel actually needed their assistance at one point. So I just wonder, have you ever felt like The enemy of God or the enemy of the church is prospering while it seems like the people of God are not. And then how do we respond? Have you ever wondered why it seems like the evil secular culture is gaining for our children, gaining ground against our children while we seek to raise them in the Lord? And you wonder, how do we respond? Have you ever wondered in our day how it seems like evil prospers and righteousness is silenced? How do we respond? More to the point, have you ever been in a place where God's enemy, maybe a tribe or a a mob, a social media movement, attacks the people of God, attacks you or the church, the word of God, and you wonder how do we respond? I'm sure we've felt this tension as the culture becomes more hostile toward the church, toward the kingdom of God, toward those who would stand on the word of God. How do we respond when we look out and it seems like evil is prevailing? When it seems like the enemy is winning? The Israelite readers were left wondering this as well. Why the success of Esau when Israel still doesn't have a king? Should they have just abandoned God? I mean, it's working for Esau, it seems like. Should they have moved out of the land of Canaan where they were threatened to find somewhere nice like Seir where they could grow? Would it have been easier just to marry the Canaanites? To become like the Hivites in chapter 34. Remember, the Hivites were like, let's just become one people. 
How do we respond when it seems like the enemy is advancing? Well, we learn from Genesis 36 that we are to keep standing in faith on the promises of God and continue living out his mission. We keep standing in faith on the promises of God and live on mission with him. I'll show you really quickly. In Genesis 37, Isaac actually blessed Esau. Do you remember that? Esau comes to his dad. He says, God, do you have just something for me, like scraps? Remember him asking for that? And then in Joshua 24, verse 4, God says, what Isaac said is what I said. And Isaac told his son Esau, you're going to live away from the land of promise. That's fulfilled. He says that he would live by the sword. That's fulfilled. That he would serve Jacob. Eventually he does under David. But then Isaac says, you will eventually burst free of that yoke, which he does eventually break free. All of these words are fulfilled. But because of their leaving the land of Canaan, because of their life by the sword, because of their attacks against Israel, they are judged. So God is at work in Edom. He's actually working in the lives of the enemy, the Edomites. Nothing is outside of his command. No enemy, no neighbor, no coworker, no tribe or mob. Nothing is outside of his sovereign command. Everything is under his rule, even the Edomites. And he guides history to make sure all of these things happen to the Edomites. And if we look at Genesis 37, look at there, the next chapter, verse 1. This is actually the end of the section where it says, Jacob, here's what Esau did. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning, in the land of Canaan. And it says, these are the generations of Jacob, and it picks up with Jacob again. God had promised to be with Jacob. That's the promise. God had promised to bless Jacob, to lead Jacob into a growing nation so that through his nation in this land of promise, the blessing of God's presence and redemption could go out unto all of the world. So Jacob says, that's the mission of God. I'm staying in Canaan no matter what, except a famine. But God tells him to leave on account of the famine. In verse, we read this already in verse 35. This is what God said. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation will come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I'll give this land to your offspring after you. So standing in Canaan is an act of faith from Jacob. No matter, he says, no matter what I see around me, no matter how challenging it might be. Do you remember in Genesis 35, all the other people in Canaan were like, we can get them. They're so small. And the only thing that saved them was the fear of the Lord came upon the Canaanites. So Jacob knows there's a threat, but he says, I'm staying no matter what, because God has promised to do this mission through us. So he's going to stand on those promises. But there's another promise that concerns Edom and Israel and you and me. It's in Genesis 3. When sin entered the world, when the entire human race became God's enemy, by listening to the tempting voice of Satan, and so brought on death. 
There, God promised to work redemption for his creation through the birth of a son. The son would destroy the enemy's grip over creation because you see, God is on mission to rescue his enemies. To restore those who have come against him, who have rebelled against him in sin, and who have shaken free of his yoke. If you have sinned against God, rebelled against his rule in your life, said, no thanks, I'll do it myself, God, you are his enemy, as the Edomites are his enemy. And God has promised to handle Edom, Israel's enemy, and he has also promised to handle me, to deal with me, his enemy, and to deal with you as well. Balaam promised that Edom would be subdued by the king of Israel, which happens until they rise again. God judged them in Amos 1 and said that he himself would bring about their demise, which happens. When the Greeks invade the land, the Edomites are totally and utterly consumed by other nations. And only a small remnant is left of the Edomites. They're called the Idumeans, is what they become known as. They're just gone. No more kings, no more chiefs. No more prosperity. But then in Amos, where God promised to destroy the Edomites, he also says this beautiful word. There's always redemption through judgment. It says in Amos 9, 11, and 12, in that day, the day of salvation, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its branches this image of a tree, a life-giving tree that is Israel, that is the family of God. I'll restore his branches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they, that they, that's the Edomites, the remnant that's left, may possess all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord. He says that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations that come to my name. Edom is the enemy and is given a promise there will come a day when they can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. To be enemies no more. They'll become the people of God. These people who plagued the people of God forever will become God's people. How? How will this happen? A king will come from Israel a greater David, a greater Jacob, a greater Judah, who will draw these men and women, these enemies, into the family of God. Jacob might have shown a glimmer of faith by staying in Canaan, but we find out next week as we get into Genesis 37, even in the household of God's people, they are enemies because of sin. Romans 5. But the true king, the promised king of Israel from Jacob was born into the world from Mary, a tribe of Judah. He is Jesus, the son of Jacob, the son of God. And he has come to fulfill all of these promises made to God's enemies. Made to Israel, made to Adam and to Eve, to Edom and to you and me. The only son who could walk this earth with total faith. 
just south of Bethel, just north of Seir, inside the boundaries of the land of promise, Jesus Christ shed his perfect, sinless, innocent blood on a tree so that all of God's enemies could come into the family tree that is God's. If you have your scriptures, you can go to Mark chapter 3. Verse 7. Mark 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and Jerusalem, and Idumea. And Idumea. That is Edom. And from beyond the Jordan, from everywhere, everyone's flocking to Jesus. Even his enemies, and historically the enemies of Israel, they come around Tyre and Sidon. But the great crowd heard all that he was doing. They came to him. He just told his disciples, have a boat ready for him because the crowd, lest they crush him, that's how much they want to get to Jesus. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. God's enemies pressing around, crushing him, wanting to be near him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. Jesus died on a cross to destroy sin's power for all who would come to know him and put their faith in his work, even the Idumeans who would gather around him to know him and to find healing in his name. Romans 5 tells us we're all God's enemies, but that God was not threatened by us. Instead, he sent his, moved by love, he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to redeem us while we were still his enemies. This is the work of our God. So that all who would look on him in faith would become a part of his family tree. This is good news. It's gospel. We're all his enemies made his children by the cross. So let's return to right now, to the present, our lives. How do we respond when we look around and it seems like God's enemies are prevailing? When it seems like those outside of the covenant community are pretty successful? Well, our church plant just tries to be faithful with the gospel. We keep standing in faith on the promises of God and living on mission with him. Faith is not like wishful thinking. I really hope this succeeds. It's actually described as assurance. We have these assurances that all things in this world are working together for the good of those who love God and are called by his purposes. We have the assurance that in the end, not one enemy will threaten the church nor Christ. We have the assurance that the church will prevail over the gates of hell. We have the assurance that no matter what it looks like, how challenging, no matter who comes against us with the sword, the victory has been won on the cross of Christ. And finally, as a gospel-fluent community, we live the mission of Jesus. God loves us. He loves his enemies. He has sent his son to save them. And just as the son was sent, so he has sent us into this world. So we, we've actually been sent to the Edomites in our lives. 
to those who would draw a sword against us. We've been sent to proclaim good news. To proclaim that in Jesus we can all by faith be saved from the judgment that is death that we deserve and be made part of God's family. We see this perfectly displayed, displayed in Christ. For when he was on the cross, the true son of Jacob, the true son of God, at the hand of his enemies, defeated by his enemies, he looks up to his father and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He commanded us to pray for our enemies as well, and the evil that persecutes us. Why? Because the gospel is the good news of salvation for enemies. For you and me, for all the world, God is winning us. And we've been sent to proclaim this good news. So let's pray for those who align themselves against us. Let's boldly declare the good news of salvation to every tribe. Let's stand in the hostile world, confident in faith that God has the victory.